This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, the borrowing power of home buyers is going backwards as rates rise, but the financial regulator is sticking with its 3% buffer test. Also, home rental prices are surging and some regional towns are hardest hit. We'll hear where it's hurting most. Those areas that are, you know, perhaps one to two hours from a CBD that are appealing for people looking for larger homes that have been priced out of capital cities, those are probably the areas that are going to see that biggest increase in demand over the coming years. And a TV actor with autism alleges she was blocked from seeking respite at a stadium sensory room, prompting accusations of discrimination. There is still so much stigma attached. Environments like concerts, shopping centres, they're loud, they're noisy, they're bright, they're very overwhelming for autistic people. But the solution shouldn't be, don't come. Getting a home loan is no easy task for many Australians these days. Not only are borrowers facing the highest interest rates for decades, their ability to service the loan is coming under close scrutiny as required by the financial services regulator, APRA. Some financial experts think it's crucial borrowers can show they've got a savings buffer and can service the loan even if rates do go up. But others argue it's a matter that should be left to the bank and their customers. Matt Bamford has more. For months now, Sydney homeowner Katrina Marsh has watched her interest rate rising with increasing concern. The savings have really been taking a nosedive, so it is has been a really difficult few months to to get through and yeah, just watching the savings sort of hemorrhage. It's led her to consider refinancing, but there's a catch. The fact that they assess the serviceability of the loan against quite a high interest rate and the fact that interest rates just keep on rising uh, really took me by surprise. Uh, The rate that they quoted was 8.5%, which, yeah, was, was quite a buffer on what their actual interest rates on the market were, which were in the fours or the fives. Lenders are required by financial watchdog APRA to test borrowers can withstand a 3% rate rise. But in a bid to curb inflation, rates are rising at their fastest pace in years. A new prediction from Westpac suggests the Reserve Bank cash rate will peak higher than previously expected at 4.1% in May, up from 3.35% currently. It sees the cash rate dropping back down to 3% by the end of 2024. In the meantime, the lending buffer could potentially trap borrowers who can't pass the test. These people are called mortgage prisoners. Sad that it has to be like that. Like the system doesn't really need to be that interest rate rises are the only ways to curb inflation, but it kind of currently is. So I guess I understand where that buffer comes from. Economist Peter Chulup from the Centre for Independent Studies says the serviceability buffers need reforming. Lending conditions should be decided by the borrower and the lender. They can decide what suits their own circumstances and set conditions appropriately. It's no real business of APRA. Amid speculation APRA might loosen these regulations, today it announced they're staying, citing economic uncertainty in Australia and overseas. 
I just don't think that makes sense. 3% buffer that applied when mortgage rates were down below 2% is not applicable when after mortgage rates have risen above 6%. The likelihood several years ago, the mortgage rates increasing was very high. Now, mortgage rates are likely to move sideways and they may even decline. So, having that high buffer that was appropriate several years ago is not appropriate now. So, what should happen? I think APRA should allow borrowers and lenders to sort through themselves what appropriate loan terms are. And so, if a borrower has been making, say, for example, regular rental payments in excess of the mortgage payment, they should be assessed as a good risk rather than having this inflexible rule imposed from outside. But not everyone agrees. Dr Leonora Reese is an economics lecturer at RMIT University. These buffers exist for a reason, for a purpose. They're there to protect borrowers from unexpected fluctuations uh, in in interest rates. I can understand that some borrowers might think that they're unnecessarily high, but their, their general purpose is there to to guard against these unpredictable fluctuations. In a statement, APRA says while there's potential for pockets of stress, lending standards remain sound and loan arrears are low. Dr Leonora Reese says buffers are part of a suite of measures to help regulate the market. But that could change if the number of mortgage prisoners rises. Then there perhaps is um, a reason for further action to be taken to try to support these individuals because it's not in anyone's interest to see people being unable to service their loans or to be really, really crunched in terms of repayments um, and not able to get by in terms of other expenses. I mean, that, that really just isn't, isn't a healthy picture for anyone in society. Dr Leonora Reese from RMIT University, Matt Bamford with that report. And it's not only property buyers who are having a tough time securing a home at the moment. The cost of renting in some regional towns has increased by more than 40% in the last year, according to data from real estate appraiser PropTrack. And housing experts say the solution to the rental shortage isn't as simple as building more homes. Angus Randall reports. If you search for rentals in the South Australian seaside town of Port Broughton, there's only one home available. That's in a town of more than a thousand people. Bonnie Stringer is the director of Broughton Realty. She's not surprised the town is close to capacity. I think we've got a fantastic, relaxed, safe and affordable lifestyle to offer, so why wouldn't you want to move to Port Broughton? (laughs) Data from real estate appraiser PropTrack looking at prices in the year to the end of January show a 43% increase in rental prices in Port Broughton. It's the second highest rise in the country. Despite this, there's no shortage of possible tenants hoping to secure a home. We've been getting many, many applications in comparison to, to what we normally would have. You know, we're getting dozens rather than, you know, two or three. So it's a, a huge increase in comparison to what we're used to. Bonnie Stringer says the latest stats don't tell the whole story. She says properties coming onto her market are often newer, bigger homes that come with higher rents. So the price spike can't be entirely blamed on landlords testing the market. Yeah, look, we've been very lucky. Um, I think with it being such a small community, our tenants that have been in homes for many years, we've had some very loyal landlords that have 
said, you know, well, we'll keep a, a good tenant and we'll um, certainly, you know, keep the price as is or, or a small increase, you know, $10, $20. Ifita G works in financial services at community organisation Uniting Country SA. She supports residents in regional towns across South Australia, including Port Broughton. She says she's been seeing more clients struggling to pay their rent. It's really pushed people out of their, their budget zone you know like normally they would they would be able to afford their rent and their cost of living but now we're seeing people that were not previously ever clients of ours who are now struggling with their cost of living and coming to see us so obviously the costs are getting you know too much for everyone not just people who are on Centrelink benefits who are on low incomes it's easier to not pay your rent and be able to put food on the table than to pay all your bills and go without Port Broughton is an ageing town. At the last census, the median age was 63, compared to the national figure of 38. Prop track economist Anne Flaherty says towns like Port Broughton are perfect candidates for a sustained rent rise. Particularly those regional areas that are you know, seeing perhaps more people retire into or those areas that are you know, perhaps one to two hours from a CBD that are appealing for people looking for larger homes that have been priced out of capital cities. Those are probably the areas that are going to see that biggest increase in demand over the coming years. Today's prop track release is based on rentals listed online, so it doesn't account for landlords raising the rent on existing tenants. The price rises aren't just limited to regional areas. In Melbourne's CBD, the apartment rental asking price rose by 42%, and there's no evidence supply is about to meet demand. Look, we actually predict that rents are going to continue rising, and the main reason for that is that there doesn't seem to be an end in sight for um, this issue of keeping up the supply of properties with our growing population. So, you know, population growth is back on. We're seeing the speed at which new homes are being constructed slow. So this is going to have, you know, pretty serious consequences when it comes to supply over the coming years. Leo Patterson-Ross is the CEO of the Tenants' Union of New South Wales. He says the solution is much more complex than building more homes. At the end of the day, supply is going to have an impact and we should be looking to build what we can. But it is true that, you know, in smaller towns, it is harder to build that supply at the kind of level that would make a big difference. And so that's why most countries do look at regulating rents in a much more serious way than Australia does. And, you know, we're talking almost all of Europe, many similar countries to ours and many countries where we would aspire to their quality of life. The national rental vacancy rate stands at below 1%. Angus Randall with that report. A television actor with autism has alleged she was blocked from seeking respite at a Melbourne Stadium sensory room over the weekend. Heartbreak High star Chloe Hayden says other people have since come forward to say they've had a similar experience. Advocates say the incident reflects not only a lack of staff training but the lingering stigma of autism. Gavin Coote has more. Big, loud sporting arenas, bright lights, lots of people. It was touted in 2019 as Melbourne's first stadium sensory room. To get away from the hustle and bustle of events that we hold here at the stadium, if any member of that family starts to feel that they're having a sensory overload. Knowing that this space is here gives me confidence to come to the game with the kids. The room at Melbourne's Docklands Stadium includes a bubble wall, fidget tools and noise-cancelling headphones for people with autism and others who experience sensory challenges. 
But stadium staff are now being accused of ableism and discrimination after actor Chloe Hayden posted on social media that she was barred from accessing the room during Harry Styles' concert at the weekend. The 25-year-old, who is autistic and has ADHD, rose to prominence playing an autistic character, Quinny Gallagher-Jones, in the Australian Netflix series Heartbreak High. The actor alleges she was told by staff that she didn't look autistic enough to access the sensory room and that dozens of others have since messaged her with similar experiences. Advocates see it as a major setback. I think it's really disappointing and disturbing because it really highlights that aspect of autism, that it is a hidden disability. Professor Sandra Tom-Jones is the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Research Impact at the Australian Catholic University. She's also an autistic woman and mother of two autistic adult sons. We've come a very little way and we've got a very, very long way to go. Uh, One of the things that that really disturbs me is this perception, as I say, we have this stereotype that autism looks a certain way, which is young boys, because that's what people see. You know, we see autistic children, we don't see autistic adults. And the reason we don't see autistic adults is things like this. You know, environments like concerts, shopping centres, they're loud, they're noisy, they're bright, they're very overwhelming for autistic people. But the solution shouldn't be don't come, don't go shopping, don't go watch a concert, don't be in society, stay home, um, stay out of the way, um, don't make us feel uncomfortable. That shouldn't be the message. The Docklands Stadium has since apologised, with a spokesman saying he was extremely disappointed to hear fans couldn't access the sensory room. It's estimated one in 70 Australian adults are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, and sensory rooms aim to give them respite from the loud noises and bright lights of concerts and other forms of overstimulation. Occupational therapists like Dino Manillo have spent a lot of time thinking about how to make spaces more inclusive for people with autism. Nationally, there aren't many services that provide actual therapeutic services for adults with sensory issues. So in about 2018, we invested a huge amount of money into building a, a purpose-built gym and then developing or working with people um, to bring on assessments that could focus more on adults with sensory issues as well. So any building now that would potentially obviously have a number of people or exposure to the to the broader community and would have to be inclusive of people with all types of disabilities would need to cater, I guess, for people with sensory issues. And, and that being so, I think um, instead of refitting spaces, which is what a lot of these places have done now that, that are existing, they would just factor them into their development and, and their design and construction. Professor Sandra Tom-Jones says these facilities are only effective if people feel comfortable around them. If we make it so difficult for people to access these, we say here's a sensory room, but first you have to show me your diagnostic paperwork and then you have to convince me that I, who am not a clinician, think you're disabled enough to use it. If I make it so hard for you to use it, people aren't going to use the sensory room. And the incident at this sensory room at Marvel Stadium, does that come back to a lack of training or a broader lack of understanding in society about autism? It comes back to both. There is a broader lack of understanding in the community. And that's where people like Chloe are, are wonderful because, you know, she's, she's getting out there and she's showing people that Girls can be autistic too, and autistic people can be loud and vibrant and colourful. You know, we don't we don't all look the same. But it's also training. It's like you don't look disabled enough to be disabled, but you look 
too disabled to fit in. It's a really horrible message. It's a you know really strong message of exclusion. You don't you don't fit in anywhere. Docklands Stadium management says after conversations this morning with patrons affected, a new extra sensory room will be included in the stadium redevelopment when it's completed later this year. Gammon Cooch reporting. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, we take to the water and ask, is it time for Australia's ferries to go cleaner and greener on battery power? The ferry to depart from side A is the best route. You know, it would be good to see something that's very cutting edge and responding to the new energy technologies. Yeah, I'd vote electric. Why? Uh, just that's the way the world has to move. More and more electric cars are being sold, so why not ferries? Tiwi Islanders and Green Groups are accusing gas company Santos of failing to disclose important environmental risks associated with its Barossa gasfield and pipeline project. The development has started about 300 kilometres offshore from Darwin. But as Jane Barden reports, the company denies it's held back information during community consultations. Tiwi elder Therese Walkout-Burke sat through a community consultation by gas company Santos at Melville Island earlier this month. As she listened, she became even more concerned about its planned offshore gas field and pipeline. I feel like they don't really care about what we think and feeling about this threat to our home. Because I felt like that they were more or less wooing us, you know, sweetening us up. They were talking about going into partnership or doing stuff with the Prangimpi people. Was there a suggestion that they would be helping to pay for things? Yes, there was. In its environment plan application, Santos said there's a low to medium risk a condensate oil spill could pollute waters from the Tiwi Islands to Indonesia and harm endangered dolphins, whales and sharks. It would try to prevent this by building high-integrity wells and quickly respond to any spill. Therese Burke says that information wasn't given by Santos at the meeting. Brett was assuring us that they only used this very light oil, which would not have much effect on the marine life. Santos had started drilling the Barossa field after getting federal government approval, but was required to stop and redo consultations after the Tiwis won a federal court case, which found the first round was inadequate. Naish Gone from the Environment Centre thinks the new consultations were also inadequate and Santos should have revealed that dolphins died after a condensate spill at its WA Varanus Island facility last year. I was concerned that Santos were minimising the potential risks and impacts. I'm shocked that Santos did not disclose this spill. The ABC asked Santos whether it revealed environmental risks or offered inducements. It replied with a statement saying 400 people welcomed the company at positive sessions with high engagement. It said many community members were pleased Santos came onto the islands. Therese Burke says some Tiwis, including her nephew, were satisfied. 
but she worries the project will go ahead, even if a majority of locals oppose it. I said, is all this thing that you're saying, is this your means of getting to your end result? Australian National University Professor Sarah Bice has been researching consultation processes with communities where there are foregone conclusions on projects across Australia. She says there's widespread realisation among governments and companies that consultation needs to improve and that this can prevent delaying protest and court action. In our research, we've seen that there's more than $30 billion of project losses contributed to by stakeholder opposition, by community protests. She says being honest about what changes are possible is most important. And in project world, we call this negotiables and non-negotiables. And many, many times community members enter consultation without really knowing what genuinely can be changed and what cannot. Tony Clark is the chair of the Consultants Peak Body, the International Association for Public Participation. There is clearly a very significant trend of, of more increased engagement and certainly we're really lobbying governments to get engagement embedded into legislation because good engagement equals good outcomes. He also thinks honesty is the best strategy. I think where there's a lot of falling down is there's a lot of fear that we know people aren't going to like this, let's not go out and ask them. Setting the expectation that we want to find out where we want to put something with the full knowledge you're going to put it there. It's not an honest, authentic or genuine way to do things. And that's where you need to start to manage things. Be honest. The chair of the International Association for Public Participation, Tony Clark, he was speaking there to Jane Barden. The company behind Coles and Woolworths' soft plastics recycling program has been declared insolvent several weeks after the discovery of thousands of tonnes of plastic stockpiled in warehouses. The supermarket giants have agreed to take responsibility for Red Cycle's massive plastic hoards, but a warning some of the material may still end up in landfill. So what's the future of soft plastic recycling in this country? Rachel Hayter takes a look. The collapse of the Red Cycle Recycling Scheme comes as a blow for the people carefully collecting their bread bags and frozen pea packets and taking them to their local supermarket. If there is not a market to buy the materials that we recycle, then the whole pipeline closes down and stops working. Suzanne Tumbaru is the CEO of the Australian Council of Recycling. If we're going to see proper recycling happen with soft plastics or any other material, we need to make sure that there are viable uh, and and very good working collection systems. We need to make sure that there is infrastructure that processes that material and we have to make sure that there is a market to buy it back up again and ideally go through that whole process all over again at, at the end of its use. The parent company behind Red Cycle has today been declared insolvent by the New South Wales Supreme Court. Red Cycle had already stopped operating in November after the discovery of thousands of tonnes of soft plastics stockpiled in warehouses around Melbourne. In a statement on their website, Red Cycle says the downstream links of the chain were unable to keep up and because the system is still maturing, it rarely, if ever, operates in perfect harmony. Paul Hone is the general manager of Replas, which stands for Repeat Plastics Australia Limited. It's one of the companies Red Cycle supplied its soft plastics to. We receive them in bale form. We would put them through a process to take them from a bale form to a pellet. 
and then we put the pellets into our molding machines to manufacture multiple products for the built space, you know, from bollards to waterboard products. He says Replaz still has the capacity to process twice the amount of soft plastics it's currently receiving. But the issue is selling the products. If people were buying more of our products, we could recycle more plastic. It's really as simple as that. We can't recycle and make products that people aren't going to buy. He says all levels of government should be considering sustainability in their procurement processes, not just cost. If the government wishes to be serious about recycled plastic products, it needs to say to the people making the purchasing decisions that there needs to be more than just what's the price. There needs to be what's the sustainability of that product, recyclability of that product, circular economy, so that there is something more than just comparing something that's cheap as opposed to something that is slightly more expensive but better for the environment. Rebecca Gilling is the CEO of Planet Arc. I'm amongst the many disappointed customers who have nowhere currently to drop off their soft plastics. She says soft plastics recycling needs to ramp up again quickly because we're running out of landfill. I know that the Goulburn landfill, for example, which is where Sydney's waste is going, has only got a few more years left in it. As for RedCycle's thousands of tonnes of stockpiled plastics, Coles and Woolworths will take responsibility for them. In a statement, they say they'll be starting work this week to address the current storage issues and conduct inspections over the coming weeks. They say they'll work to recycle as much as possible, but some may still be sent to landfill. Coles, Woolworths and Aldi formed part of a government soft plastics task force in November. The task force is set to release a roadmap in the coming weeks. Rachel Hayter reporting. Well, in the push to make public transportation cleaner and greener, we often hear about the efforts to roll out electric vehicles to replace fossil fuel-burning cars and buses. But what about the ferries that ply the coastlines, harbours and rivers of this island nation? Nick Grimm takes a look at the push for battery-powered vessels to replace the existing fleets. The ferry is apart from side A is the best three service to Sydney Olympic Park. When it comes to the daily commuter, ferry ride can be hard to beat. Well, if this is public transport, it's probably the best in the world. I mean, it feels like you're on holiday every day if you're travelling on something like this. It's a privilege to live in a city where you've got that option. We, we really enjoy just sitting on them and enjoying watching the world go by on them. Yeah, I've tried the ferries quite a bit. I think it's wonderful. I mean, from, from a visitor's point of view, the fact that there is so much easy, accessible public transport around here is fantastic. Um, there's so many of them and they're so fast, I can't believe it. It hasn't exactly been plain sailing, though, for ferry services in the harbour city of Leighton. In the dock, the latest Sydney ferry facing... Sydney's new manly ferries have been forced out of service indefinitely after repeated... And just last week, the New South Wales government torpedoed its search for a new fleet of Parramatta River ferries, announcing no contract would be awarded and that a new tender process might be launched instead. And as ageing fleets need updating... Ferry fans like these think the solution is obvious. You know, it would be good to see something that's very cutting edge and responding to the new energy technologies. Yeah, I'd vote electric. Why? 
Uh, just that's the way the world has to move. More and more electric cars are being sold, so why not ferries? They're used all over Northern Europe. Denmark have got lots of electric ferries. So on short haul, short hop ferries such as these, why not? And that's a question some boat builders are also asking. Michael Eglin is the CEO of EV Maritime, a company currently building two battery-powered ferries for the New Zealand city of Auckland. He argues Australia should be doing the same. In some respects, the biggest obstacles aren't really technical ones. The challenge is that it's a quite a different commercial model in that electric ferries, like electric cars, cost a lot more to buy, a lot more to build, but they cost a lot less to run. And so doing that then in the public sector, especially when you've then got a kind of a existing public transport contracts in place and budgets and all the rest of it, it can take a bit to kind of drive that through the system. Currently, two battery-powered ferries operate on Sydney Harbour but are only suitable for smaller capacity routes. In contrast, the Tasmanian shipbuilder Incat is developing a battery-powered car ferry capable of carrying more than 2,000 passengers to service a route between Argentina and Uruguay. Everything is transitioning very quickly to alternative fuels, methanol, biofuels, or, but mainly batteries. So uh, we're learning on our feet. But Incat CEO Tim Burnell fears Australia will miss out on an opportunity to be a world leader in battery electric vessels if ferry operators here replace existing fleets with more diesel-powered craft. Even so, he's looking forward to the voyage ahead. The future is bright for the marine transport industry or certainly the ferry industries in Australia. Our routes, certainly Sydney Harbour, even Port Phillip Bay, Brisbane, even Hobart have got the perfect geography to support electric ferries and um, I'm looking forward to see where we go. The CEO of Incat Tasmania, Tim Burnell, Nick Grimm with that report. And tomorrow we'll take a look at some of the challenges to electrifying Australia's ferry fleets. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Do head to the PM webpage for all our interviews and reports. You can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. And do check out ABC News Daily with Sam Hawley each weekday morning. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. How would you feel if a bank made you guarantee in writing that you'd move back in with your mother if you couldn't pay your home loan anymore? Today, business editor Ian Verinder on the incredible profits the banks are making as hundreds of thousands of people struggle to make ends meet. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.